Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So this is my weekly wrap-up video where I grab a handful of different topics that I find to be uh, interesting or, or important and I kind of expand upon those. And I want to start this video off with uh, the very topic that I mentioned in the title of this video, gold and silver seemingly being on the cusp of a breakout. Now this is the one month chart that you're looking at here. Uh, now silver is actually in this goldish color here and gold's actually black. Imagine that. But uh, what you're seeing right here, especially in the last uh, couple days actually, last 24 hours of, of me filming this, I'm filming this after the, the markets have closed uh, here on on Friday, uh, you see gold break through that key resistance level of right around 1350 actually as high as just around 1357 before then giving up a, a fair bit of those gains. Now, this has been a breakthrough of, of again, a key resistance level that's around 1350. Now, is this the breakout that we've been waiting for? We're going to need some time for confirmation on, on whether or not that's actually the case. And the reason I say that is because oftentimes when you hear me talking about this key resistance level, I'll usually bring up anywhere from 1350 to 1360 because of the truth of the matter is that in the past, it has usually found itself finding resistance in that range, but not squarely at 1350. Another important thing to, to note is that it broke through that resistance and actually topped out here in overnight hours here in the United States which is a thinner market. And so you have like the Asian markets and maybe the European markets were open for part of this. US markets weren't open. Not, not to say that it's meaningless, this breakout. In fact, I think it means a lot. But to, to get a good confirmation that gold has indeed broken out, what I would like to see is a close above 1350, 1360 would be even better. And if we could close above that for a couple days, that would be a very strong confirmation that this is the breakout that we've been waiting for. Now, I also put in this title that silver is on the cusp of a breakout as well. Now, if you look at the chart just for silver, uh, it topped out around 1510, which is not at all an important technical number unless we're talking about like short-term uh, moving averages or something like that, that that I'm unaware of. It's not a huge resistance line, but uh, if you want to know what I'm talking about there, uh, I, I would reference my video that I put out yesterday titled Why I'm Stacking Silver But Watching Gold. Talking about why the price of gold, I think, right now is maybe even more significant to the price of silver than the price of silver itself, meaning that once gold breaks out, that's when the party really gets started. Now, again, to, to put this in perspective, this is a five-year chart right here for gold. And you can see that it has indeed met this resistance in this range. Not quite there. You know, if we look at maybe a daily chart for back in 2014, summer 2014, you maybe find it a little higher than what it's showing up as, as in the 1340 range. But if you go here in uh, 2016, this was after the Brexit vote, again, you find that resistance uh, north of 1360, but again, in that range, and then again, find that resistance there, uh, you know, a handful of weeks later. Uh, here in, uh, towards the end of the summer, beginning of fall of 2017, you again find it, uh, see it finding that resistance around 1350. And then multiple times here in 2018. And then once again, you see it, you don't quite see it in this chart, but but it, it did reach up pretty close to that here in February of this year. And then actually just like a, uh, uh, couple weeks ago, we saw it reaching up pretty close to 1350 again. And so this is a pretty key level. Is it on the cusp of a breakout? Well, again, I think it is on the cusp, but to, to really get a confirmation of this, we need a close above 1350, close above 1360 preferably, and also for a couple days. With that being said, uh, this is still a very encouraging one month chart, especially considering this is the middle of June. 
what I mean by that is oftentimes June, uh, July, even August can be negative months sometimes for precious metals. And thus far, it's been a pretty strong start to to the summer season. So uh, we'll see. You know, I don't want to make uh, mountains out of molehills here, but Again, I can't stress just how important that resistance line for gold could prove to be in retrospect. Now, another thing I want to talk about real quick here about gold and silver is the gold to silver ratio, which continues to move up north of 90 to 1. That was its close for uh, the week. So again, it just continues to march up, up, up. Uh, Again, that's not all that worrying for me personally. Uh, Honestly, that's... I don't want to put it so simply, but it's kind of music to my ears in the sense that, I'm, as I said before, I'm stacking silver right now. Would I love to own gold? Yeah, I'd love to trade a lot at silver for gold or buy gold at some point in the future. But given this ratio, it's hard for me to justify that. And that's why I'm sticking with silver for the time being. Now, moving on from precious metals. I had two kind of longer term ones to talk about here. But real quick, heading into the weekend, I did want to talk about maybe the biggest news item uh, that many of you guys have been watching in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, and that is the uh, the Iran uh, the, the Strait of Hormuz, the the strait that goes between um, Iran and Oman and and a couple other smaller countries in that area, through which something like one fifth of the world's crude oil passes through. We're, we're talking about a lot of Gulf nations, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. I think Iraq sends a lot of theirs. Maybe Iran sends a lot of theirs through this strait. And then some other ones, I think UAE, um, Qatar, uh, some other ones that move through this very narrow strait that uh, has kind of been a hotbed of, of tensions going back to, well, going back to the Iranian-Iraqi war, right? And, and this latest chapter uh, comes about a one month after reports of sabotage or attack on some other uh, tankers. I think they were t- uh, oil tankers versus just cargo ships. I, I don't recall exactly. But this one was two different uh, tankers that were, were struck. One was carrying uh, naphtha, which is a, a oil, a crude oil byproduct. Um, and the other one was carrying uh, methanol, I believe. And the story right now is that they were, you know, the official story is that they were struck by limpet mines, which are, are uh, magnetically attached mines. And, and the U.S. In, in a very short period of time has come to the conclusion that the uh, culprit behind this was Iran. Now, I want to talk about whether or not that's the case or why we should be doubtful of that. But, but first, regardless of who did it, the catalyst or the argument for a military intervention in Iran is growing stronger by the day among neoconservatives, among uh, friends of Saudi Arabia, of Israel, which would would love to see uh, Iran taken down a notch. Regardless of who did this, regardless if it was a false flag or it was actually Iran or who knows, that's the case right now. Prepare accordingly. Right. Uh, I think that that this is part of the reason why gold and and to some extent silver have seen uh, a big move up uh, just in the last uh, couple days. A part of the reason that gold broke through that resistance level. Obviously, we saw quite a bit of action in the oil market. Now, heading into the weekend, I was actually surprised to see gold and silver not close it a little bit higher than where they did, considering, you know, we have what, like 48 hours or however long 
in which the markets are going to be closed, but that doesn't mean that that the potential for escalation with Iran is is off the table just because you know the markets are closed. And so you know, watch this space, uh, watch this space with Iran here, and whether or not this escalates. Uh, now, as for for who actually did this, uh, I, well, I'll put it this way: I want to search for something here. I'm going to go to Babylon B. It's it's a satire site. It's it's an excellent satire site that I suggest you guys follow. And they actually had this great one here about John Bolton. Uh, I want to see if I find it here. Uh, here we go. Babylon B. Uh, John Bolton. When has the government ever lied about attacks on ships in a Gulf somewhere just to provoke war? <laughs> and he goes on here. When has the government ever lied about ships being attacked, say, in a Gulf somewhere, for the purpose of getting involved in another foreign conflict? Can you point to a single time... A lie about a minor attack resulted in a major unnecessary war? No, I didn't think so, he said. These attacks on the Gulf of Tonk, or I mean the Gulf of Oman, excuse me, were definitely carried out by Iran. And he goes on and on. And the point of this is we should be questionable, questioning this. And and I love that that the Babylon Bee, the Onion News, uh, even like Bloomberg, uh, CNN, for, for what it's worth, has at least chimed in and not totally. Now, now when it's all said and done, yeah, I mean, if if... If it's what the media wants, if, if, if they want to push us into another war or whatever. I mean, war, uh, I think, sells news pretty well, maybe even better than, than Trump would. They're talking about Trump for CNN or for whoever. And so, I mean, yeah, they, I think they're, they're happy to do their part if that's the case. But the amount of, I guess, I don't know, to, to use a term that I don't use often, I don't really like, but the amount of wokeness uh, among the, the broader population is encouraging in the sense that, we don't just accept us at face value. Now, there's going to be a lot of people out there, even watching this video, that will accept us at face value. Iran did it. It's settled science. But but that's far from the truth. I mean, the U.S. has come to this conclusion in a very brief period of time. And there is reason to question U.S. intelligence, whether we're talking about the Gulf of Tonkin, the, uh, the WMDs in Iraq, which some people still claim were there, but not a whole lot of people. Uh, John Bolton might be one of those people, actually, uh, or or various other you know piece of pieces of of um, intelligence that that got us into a conflict. Right? Uh, we we could maybe even be adding something like the uh, uh, the gas attacks in Syria to this list. Uh, had had that ended up escalating, we should question this now. You know what. You really have to ask yourself what motive would the different players in the region have to carry out an attack other than Iran? Now, what motive would Iran have? Well, there is a motive, right? To, to say that they would have no motive is being facetious, right? Their motive very well could be that, hey, look, we want to show that if we want to, we can seriously impact the global economy, the shipping through this strait. Uh, through through very covert means, we're not talking about a blockade, not talking about a, a, you know warships going out because that'd be very easy to to counter by by a navy the size of the U.S.'s navy. But we can use these covert means to cripple ships or sabotage them or whatever. Okay, that not saying that's the case, but that is that could be a real motivation by Iran. However, there's other players in the region that could be uh, uh, carrying this out as well. Saudi Arabia. What would be the, the reason for Saudi Arabia doing this? Well, you know, it was recently re, uh, announced, I think, as part of this, that uh, that Houthi rebels potentially could have been part of this. Now, Houthi rebels are a, uh, an Iranian-backed you know proxy force fighting this ongoing proxy war in Yemen, right? Saudi Arabia could carry this, this out to justify an escalation in Yemen. It could use it to justify 
uh, or, or push the U.S. and 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 our allies towards war with Iran. It could be simply because, hey, the, the price of oil has really been suffering as of late, and, and it would be nice to, to get a couple bucks higher uh, in this time. I mean, that's Saudi Arabia and a lot of these Gulf countries. I mean, that's sometimes motivation enough, right, to, to carry out something like this. Um, Israel, I think, a similar motivation in the sense that, hey, if they can sucker in the U.S. or other allies into fighting Iran, that that's a win for them. Right. And for the U.S., I mean, there's absolutely a motivation for the U.S. to carry out something like this. I'm not saying that we did or Saudi or or Israeli forces did, but the motivation is there. And I don't think we should take these things at face value. I mean, when it's all said and done, it's a game of trust. How many of us can say we knew what happened in the Gulf of Oman uh, to, to these two tankers? I mean, even this this image here from from uh, the USS Bainbridge is pretty inconclusive. Uh, they have that footage here of. Uh, supposedly the Iranian Navy removing these limpet mines, which suspiciously I think were well above the waterline. So I don't know what the deal is with that. I mean, if it's some sort of magnetic mine that was attached to the hull, unless it was a boat that did it, I would think that it'd be under the waterline or pretty close to the waterline. Uh, the, the, the owner of the uh, ship, one of the ships, a Japanese uh, individual, which is another interesting thing is that one of these was a Japanese ship while uh, Japan's Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe was in Tehran uh, meeting with uh, Iranian leadership. Uh, he said that he doesn't think it was mines. He thinks it was potentially something flying or something, either either a torpedo or, you know, who knows, like a, uh, I don't know, a cruise missile or some sort of you know flying projectile, maybe not a cruise missile, but some sort of, of missile, right? Uh, all, all possibilities. And, and the truth is is complicated here, and I don't think that we should just take it at face value. Um, and yet, I think you know those that are are you know have an agenda would would be more hap- more than happy to do just that. So that's all I'm going to say about that. I mean, I, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I think it's great that people are questioning this, and I think an investigation should take place. But but even that, I mean, we have to be questionable of the findings of that because the truth is just so murky in today's world. Another thing I want to talk about here, uh, who is really funding Uncle Sam? This was shared over on Zero Hedge recently, uh, written by uh, Michael Leibowitz via realinvestmentadvice.com. And he's talking about who is funding Uncle Sam, right? who's funding the U.S. government. And I think that's a great question that I've been asking more and more as of late regarding U.S. debt. Right? We know U.S. government debt is, is a huge bubble, and it's never going to go away, and it's always going to go up, up, up. And just a question of how fast and, and how long will it take. And, and, and that's oftentimes a question that I've asked in the past. How high can this go? How much debt can they accrue, et cetera, et cetera. But more and more, I've been asking the question of who's going to buy that debt? Who's going to fund the U.S. debt? Because understand that every dollar of debt that the U.S. takes on, it, it has to be funded somehow, right? And as a whole, their entities that he discusses in this article, which I'd encourage you to read, is you have foreign bondholders, so that's foreign governments, uh, um, foreign investors, uh, you know, pensions and, and hedge funds and mutual funds and whatnot. You have the Fed, which was a huge buyer during the QE programs as of late, uh, a seller, um, soon to, to no longer be a seller, actually. Uh, they're, they're winding that down. Um, and basically what he's saying here is that, that as a whole, foreigners and the Fed have, as he says, our MRA, MIA, mis- missing in action. Uh, you can see it. Uh, you can see it here in this chart. This is the Fed. Uh, U.S. Treasury holdings here in this teal color, as a whole, has been decreasing. They, they haven't been buying. They, they've been decreasing. That's going to end soon. But they aren't buying anytime soon unless they they really turn around their policy. 
Um, and then I think, you know, I, I saw it on a different chart here. He showed, uh, or somebody else had shown um, foreigners buying bonds. Uh, who's, who's and, and I don't know if this was Michael Leibowitz, if this was somebody else, that foreigners as a whole haven't really been buying bonds. Uh, not necessarily selling. Some have. Uh, maybe China from time to time. China or, or Russia offloaded a ton of their bonds. But as a whole, it's not enough to keep up with the, you know, the $1.5 trillion that we're accumulating each year. As a whole, the, the big purchasers have been uh, domestic buyers. Right? I think 2016 to current, U.S. Treasury purchases, small amount from, from foreign purchases. The Fed has been selling. It's mostly been domestic buyers, right? Pension funds, hedge funds, mutual funds, households, all of that jazz. That's who's been buying. And, and my question always has been, you know, what's their capacity to buy bonds, especially with rates falling and, and prices going up? And so what that means, in, in, I guess in theory, would be that some funds like pension funds would have trouble continuing to buy those. And in the future, if these rates are chronically low, for, for years at a time, pensions are going to be forced to to decrease their holdings in, in bonds and, and move them to something else that's higher yield, whether it's a higher yielding debt or stocks or, or whatever other you know crazy overvalued investment they want to go into. But even all those other uh, sectors, the hedge funds and mutual funds, uh, other portfolios that, that are invested in, in bonds, U.S. government bonds, what's their appetite like? I mean, we're talking about they're going to have to soak up maybe a a trillion dollars a year indefinitely if not more just to help kind of share the burden at some point some other buyer has to come in and that's you know generally my argument is that that's going to be the fed it it's it's really interesting you know i, I talk about the fed and you know the, the the common idea conventional wisdom i guess about the fed is that their policy whether it's it's interest rate cuts or quantitative easing is in response to things like inflation or trying to stimulate the economy or unemployment or something like that. And yet, you know, I'd argue that a lot of times things like QE can be done. And I think in the future will be done, not with that thing, not with those motivations. Uh, that may be what they state are the motivations, but, but more so the motivation will be to do things like monetize debt. Or in the case of interest rates, stop the system from blowing up, Right. Never mind, let's try and keep some inflation going. Their, their, their real motive very well could be just to, to keep the system from, from blowing up in their face, right? Uh, in terms of, of stopping rate cuts, what we're seeing right now, or potentially cutting rates before the end of the year. Uh, so, uh, again, watch, just like I said with Iran, watch this space uh, and, and always be questioning the Fed's real agenda or their real motivation behind something like QE or rate cuts? Is it really about easing or stimulating inflation or uh, employment or whatever? Or is it about stopping the first system from blowing up and, and monetizing uh, U.S. government debt, buying bonds that are never going to actually be sold off their balance sheet? Now, the final thing I want to talk about, again, going back to the Fed, is this. This is an article from Wolf Richter over on Wolf Street. Uh, great blog. I like him a lot. And, and he's got this article here that I somewhat disagree with. Okay, The market is almost always wrong about what the Fed will do chart. You can see it here. The rate cuts for 2019 are a pipe dream, according to Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank. Quote, it now makes two. The chief economists at investment banks, Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank, have warned their clients that the already priced in cuts, rate cuts this year that markets are so excited about may not materialize. 
And and to prove their point, they go on and basically what they do is they, they create this chart. Well, first they have this. This is a probability of three rate cuts before the last meeting of 2019. So right now it sits around 30%. 30% chance of three rate cuts. Right? Not one, not two, but three rate cuts by then. It's that's actually pretty high likelihood. But as it goes down here, what I want to see if I can blow this chart up for you guys. What it shows is they're saying the market is almost wrong about almost always wrong about what the Fed will do. And this is from Deutsche Bank. That's their little logo up there. Okay, Fed fund futures at different points in time. Okay, and so what you see here is the market and they're, what they're kind of pricing him in these dotted lines. The red line is what they actually did. And so all the time here, you see coming into this recession here, you see them expecting the Fed to tighten, and they don't. They, they wait forever to do it. And you see it here. Um, the, the, they're expecting them to, to uh, uh, loosen policy here, loosen, 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 or, or, or stop raising rates, and they don't. Right? Then you see it here again. You expect them to, to do... Um, uh, uh, you know, stop the interest rate cuts, stop the interest rate cuts, and they don't. And ultimately, um, here during the, this huge expansion, you see the market's always priced in some sort of an increase in Fed funds rate, and yet you don't see it until like the end of 2015. Now, what's really interesting about this, I, I don't want to say every case on here, but in many cases here, the market is almost always pricing in a Fed that is more hawkish than they actually were. So you see that during this whole recovery time here, they're pricing in rate cuts, or sorry, rate hikes, but they don't happen. You see it here. The rates are coming down and the markets are pricing in a turnaround, but, but it doesn't happen. You know, the one exception maybe would be during this period right here where they expect the Fed to surprise to the dovish side or move to the dovish side and they don't. And that actually shows some parallels. To, to right here. I mean, all of the other times here is that the Fed are, are, are surprising to the dovish side versus this one period of time right here where they're surprising to the hawkish side. Otherwise, it's dovish, 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 dovish. And then this brief period of time where they, um, again, surprise slightly to the hawkish side. What the markets are pricing in right now is dovishness. And the Fed, I would guess right now, is going to be very careful to surprise to the hawkish side. Now, maybe they could get away with it back here during, during the housing boom for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, even in 2018, when they surprised to the hawkish side beyond expectations, they, they had a price to pay for that, right? Uh, something like a 20% correction in the stock market in the last quarter of 2018, uh, a 10% correction in uh, February of 2018, right? There's a price to pay for that. But when we're looking at 2019 and 2020 going forward, they're pricing in something like an entire percentage point, potentially, of rate cuts. Maybe not, but but you know the, the chance is there by the end of the year. Now, do I think that's going to happen? Uh, I don't think current conditions warrant it, and yet I definitely can see scenarios where the Fed is going to do just that for, for various reasons, various uh, weakening pieces in the economy and whatnot. Uh, but... I, I, that's kind of just my beef with this chart is that I get it. The market oftentimes is terrible at forecasting what the Fed is going to do. But there's no harm in forecasting a hawkish Fed and this price to the dovish side. Who cares? The Fed doesn't care. The market goes up. 
and and they didn't pop a bubble in the in in the process. They if anything blew up the bubble, right? That's easy for them to do. It's easy for them to surprise to the dovish side. But when it comes to surprising to the hawkish side, meaning the markets are expecting the dovish Fed and they don't perform that way, that's when you you move in that territory almost like in two, end of 2018 when the 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 Fed is being more hawkish than than markets would like. Uh, it's very risky territory, and so I think we could have a situation. You know, right now I'm not seeing a ton from the Fed saying, "Hey, we're you know rate cuts are imminent," but that's what the markets want. That's what the markets are predicting. And so if we come to the next meeting, the Fed says, "Ah, eh, we'll wait. You know, economy slightly weakening, but we're going to wait." And the markets say, okay, well, you got plenty of time to cut still in 2019. And then they go to the next meeting and the Fed doesn't cut. The markets are going to throw a fit. The Fed's going to say, no, we're, not, we're, we're going to wait a bit. And the markets are going to say, wait a second. We asked for a rate cut. We asked for as many as four rate cuts by the end of the year. And you haven't given us any yet. We're going to drop you know, 5 10 15% or more. And, and you better believe that by that time, you know, three meetings out from now, the Fed is going to be more than happy to cut, more than... You guys want one rate cut? You want two by the end? Of, we'll give you three. We'll give you four, right? Surprise to the dovish side. Here you go. You know, here's some new all-time highs or, or whatever. Try and keep this bubble going. Um, so that's kind of my beef with this chart and this uh, concept that the market's almost wrong, almost always wrong about what the Fed will do. Um, I think right now the, 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 the markets are, are sort of banking on some sort of a, I don't want to call it a self-fulfilling prophecy, but but something where where the Fed is going to have to follow suit because that's what the market expects, right? And if the market expects rate cut, uh, rate hikes and the Fed doesn't do it, there's not a whole lot of harm in that except for obviously like inflation and valuation and whatnot. But in this case, if the market's expecting a cut and it doesn't materialize, uh, they will make, I think, the Fed pay for doing uh, for not doing their bidding. So as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this video down below in the comment section. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for watching this video, listening to this podcast, and God bless.